This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, mostly just those two and kind of science, but also, I guess, ethics and art today. I mean, there's a lot of art I mean, here. Art. There's gonna, lots of yeah, art. Yeah, lots of art. I'm Stephen Caradini. And I'm Chris Kreitschow. And I'm I'm going to talk about science. And religion. I'm not the most accurate choice to be talking about the epistemology and philosophies of science. I have some background, but I feel like after uh, talking about the real world of technology, I've basically tapped out <laughs> the, the max stores of knowledge on philosophy of science that I've got. So if I sound repetitive... I, on the other hand, wrote a 25-page paper about philosophy of science for a philosophy class in my graduate work, and it was awesome. All I'm saying is that if I sound repetitive, <laughs> you know why. I'm going to be hitting those same points. We are back talking about Carl Sagan's, I almost said Cosmos, but that would be a very different show Ooh. to talk about. <laughs> Contact. We could do that. They start the same way, C-O. Mm, it's true. Same difference, right? Both of them start in outer space. It's true. Today we're going to talk specifically about both the book and the movie and their epistemology and the way their epistemology relate to their understanding, Carl Sagan's understanding, of the relationship between science and religion. And I'll open by noting that Sagan is usually described, at least among conservative Christian circles, as deeply hostile to religion and angry at faith and an opponent of Christianity. And there are reasons why he is often characterized that way. But it's not quite right. It, it is kind of right. It is kind of right, but it's not quite right. It's not quite right. But he is, especially if you were alive in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, mm -hmm. his stances, particularly on Cosmos, which you mentioned already, which was a TV show and a book, mm -hmm. run deeply counter to what we might call young earth creationism or creationism or even intelligent design. And all of those things were in the 80s and the culture wars were in their first major media instantiation. Mm -hmm. It's obviously not true in a macro sense, but for the purposes of this podcast, without getting into an intellectual history of the 20th century, <laughs> the culture wars were fully on and Carl Sagan, yep. whether he wanted to be there or not, and it's not entirely clear that he wanted to be there, was in the middle of the culture wars. Right. And in particular, he was, and I will say it this way, he was deeply opposed to what he describes in this book as fundamentalists and the view on science that he understood them to have. Now, I think there's an interesting point here about whether that view of science is actually what anyone under the name of fundamentalist should be said to have or not. But he's also not entirely wrong. So as much as they were not entirely wrong about him. There are hardcore science skeptics. Yeah. There are hardcore science skeptics. He was not entirely wrong about them. There was a lot of, and there remains, to my sorrow, a lot of deep-seated skepticism of the idea that science can tell us things about anything that doesn't really have direct kind of technological application. The question is whether science is objective or not. 
like whether there's an objective reality that science describes or whether science is just political descriptions of things that don't have the full remit of science. I think that's a better argument than actually usually gets made or got made in the 80s by the kinds of people that Sagan was arguing Hey, I'm with. being charitable. I'm being real charitable. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that there is... That is a, a good, strong argument you can have about science that we've had about science on the show before, and that it's a big part of what, for example, Ursula Franklin was trying to get at and an even bigger yeah. part of what— But I also I also attached that last part on there, which is like whether science's right. remit is not this. And that was what the big question was in the 80s, right? And so the smart people working on that question in the 80s were like, well, we should probably step back from like, does science science? <laughs> It apparently sciences, so maybe it's science. We we should step back from that, and we should look at like its underlying claims because philosophy. That sounds good, and like that's where the questions of objectivity and neutrality and politicization started to come in. And lo, we still deal with those thirty five years later. So, I feel like it's justified making that argument, even if that wasn't like the timber and tone or language of the argument that was there that was the real argument that I, was happening. I mean i just fundamentally disagree that that was the real argument that was happening i think there are people there are some people who wanted to have that argument that's fair i don't think that was the majority of the argument then any more than to be real blunt here i think that people who think that covid19 is all made up and if it is real it's caused by 5g are actually having an argument about the epistemology of science. I think there are, there are two different... Well, now, what whoa, I'm getting at a... is there are two different kinds of arguments that can be made here. And one of them is... There's a lot of arguments that can be made here. What, what I'm getting at is that there is a radical skepticism that science can tell you things, that it's trustworthy, etc. Yes. There's also... The much yeah, better version right. that you just said about politicization, objectivity, etc. And while those may at some point meet in the middle, the 80s had much more, at least in very populist writing, well, popular writing. Yeah. Well, both of those, that would be true. But, I mean, if we're going to be blunt about it, then, like, it was just conservatives being conservative for the heck of conservatism. <laughs> like, like... That's kind of mean, but what you're saying is like, don't give them credit. Just do what they were doing. Well, what I'm saying is I think it is both fair to say that Sagan mischaracterizes religion at large and that a lot of his interactions with religion gave him reason to do so. And so I don't agree with or That's excuse fair. Sagan or the people he was arguing with. I'm willing to hold them both to the fire in the ways that they ought to be held okay. feet to the fire. That's mostly what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah. Well, and so I would argue that throughout this book, he shows multiple versions of that mm -hmm. argument by like, he he does have the chapter where the fundamentalists argue with the scientists and it's bad. Very. But he also has multiple discussions with, you know, Palmer, Joss, mm -hmm. who, if you've seen the movie in the book, uh, does not sleep with Ellie, <laughs> interestingly. True. Importantly. True. <laughs> And they do have some nuanced conversations. And in fact, on a critical point, Sagan lets religion win. Yep. At the end of one chapter, in the end of one of these discussions, he just drops a sentence and it says, what in science can tell a person 
what the right thing to do is. Mm-hmm. It's never answered. He's just like, ah, I got, I lose on that one. Right. And then he just walks away into the sunset of the next chapter. And I was yep. like, Mary Midgley was somewhere clapping loudly. <laughs> you are yeah. correct, Sagan. Good yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, he acknowledges some of the limits mm-hmm. of it. But the thing is, is that, like, to be charitable to him was that people were, like, trying to defame his entire career. Right. Right? Exactly. Like, yeah. of course he was going to be mad. So he allows people to have the win when the win is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, he takes down bad arguments that were probably made to him, and mm-hmm. that's a thing. And so I think the more interesting thing to talk about is the argument I actually wanted to make <laughs> at the beginning of this episode, which is and perhaps that's fair. historically anachronistic, even though I do think that was the overall structure of the argument at a high level. But I think it's more interesting to talk about that because that's what he gets at at the end of the book. Mm. So Sagan was having that discussion, right? whether or not anybody else was. By the end of the book, he's literally saying, like, can science and religion, like, go together? Because, like... Right. There's people that were gone billions of years ago, apparently, that made stuff that the next people took up. And like, but then there's the structure of the universe that's ordered. Right. And like, he sort of leaves that they're like, hey, like, right. can't really get Sagan, around that one. Sagan famously was very much on board with and an articulator of the idea that these were two non overlapping magisteria that science was talking about the realm of things you can observe physically. In his nonfiction work. Yep. And that religion was about values. This is actually the same basic frame that Mary Midgley wanted to use when we talked about her stuff in our last episodes. Right. And following Theodore Dubzhansky, Yeah. which I suspect is where Sagan also got it. I would suspect that as well. The, the key here is that and and my point of departure from Sagan is I would say, actually, they do tend to overlap in certain critical ways. But he acknowledges that, too. But in the book, he wanted to say, we could have both. Insert GIF here, little yes. girl. Why not have yes. both? Why not both? But I think he, so this was written towards the end of his mm-hmm. um, professional career. Mm-hmm. So um, he, as I said, he passed away in the mid-90s while the movie was being filmed finally yep uh he actually got to work a little bit on it before he passed away and the film quite quite charmingly and endearingly and rightly says for carl for carl which yes so because this was written at the end of his uh career now interestingly it was actually originally written as a screenplay in 1979 Mm -hmm. which was still towards the end of his career but not quite as i mean six years makes a difference right and then right. 16 makes a difference from when the movie actually got made. Mm-hmm. So he's towards the end of his career here. He's already done a lot of things. He's already done a lot of work. He's already established. So some of his hardest stances have already been made. And so he's he's looking back a little bit, especially you can tell in the parts about grad school and mm-hmm. the parts about early career. He's looking back and saying, like, they sucked. But they were a good kind of suck, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and so so there's a part here where like the the Sagan, the mm-hmm. big capital S Sagan that we know and from his nonfiction work, it's not the Sagan that we get 
in this book. Now, it's it's obviously the same in terms of like right. the person, but in right. terms of the the stance, mm-hmm. it's a it's a bit different in sort of yeah. The it is less combative. It is less. It's very much less combative. Hostile or grumpy. It is looking for rapprochement. It is looking for how can we get past this right. giant argument we've been having with right. each other. And the key question at the center of the book and of the movie is how epistemic ground and experience fit together. How the idea of warrant for belief and experience fit together. So Palmer Joss, who is the sympathetic fundamentalist in the book, there's a very unsympathetic fundamentalist in the book. And Palmer Joss is like, yeah, you might disagree with this guy, but, you know— He's at least trying yeah. over here. The other guy's just a power hungry, money hungry maniac, and well, he's you know. a televangelist, is what he's set to up. To be fair, be. that guy definitely has existed out there. Uh, yeah, he is set up as a televangelist, and and so Joss says both in the movie and in the book. I think much more compellingly in the book. I've had this experience of an encounter with the divine, and it set me on this mm. path. And that experience was unmistakably to me. Evidence of the claims of Christianity. Ellie Arroway is not having any of it at the point in the book when they have that. She's And in the movie, too. She's all, how do you know you couldn't have just had an hallucination? How do you know you didn't just see what you wanted to see or what you needed to see? How do you yeah. know your mind didn't just make that up? Yeah. And then, at the end of the book, she sees her departed father as an alien talking to her, giving her both emotional reconciliation of the sort she's been needing for literally decades and validation of her life work project, which sounds like something that someone could justify and hand wave away as your psyche giving you what you need. Now, it also did happen to four other people, and there came some proof for it, which is one of Sagan's key distinguishers. One of the arguments he raises early in the book is look why couldn't why couldn't you have had at least some unambiguous prophecies or things that wouldn't have made any sense to the people writing them down but that would have been great validation in the year 1950 when we know things about how stars work or whatever else yeah and i mean that's not the way that god chose to do it really chose to work in time instead of out of time that's the thing as my i'm a big fan of the bible project although i haven't Mm -hmm. read anything that they've done in the last eight months so i take no responsibility (laughs) for anything that's happened the last eight months i've been a little busy maybe you have been too i don't know but um the one of the episodes says like look if you're not ready to accept that god chose to work in time instead of in your time like bible's not going to do much for you like (laughs) It's just a pre. I like the just a prerequisite is that you have to accept that this is a thing that's happening throughout history and not happening in your time. And I was like, "Yeah, right. that's true, though." <laughs> like, right. But but the key there is that Sagan wants to say that experience is in fact a legitimate form of knowledge. It he he doesn't think it's sufficient to be conclusive proof. And particularly, he distinguishes it from the kinds of evidence that are acceptable in scientific work, but he doesn't discount it as a form of knowledge. And getting at some Mm. of the discussions we had about Mary Midgley's work, this is actually a really critical distinction that a lot of 
bad working scientists, and I, I don't mean bad at doing science, but bad at doing philosophy of science, fail to make, and particularly that folks like Richard Dawkins critically fail to make, is that you can rightly say that this isn't something we can use in the context of scientific work. It's not that kind of knowledge, but that doesn't mean that it's not true knowledge. It just means that it's not warranted for use in this very specific way. Right. And Sagan seems to be just fine with saying there are kinds of knowledge that we have. Right. He puts this in a rather pithy way in the screenplay from Palmer Joss. Did you love your father? And she gets this hurt look on her face after having bared her heart to him about how much she loved her dad at one point. And she says, yes. And he says, prove it to me. <laughs> because... The key is there are things yeah. you can know that you can't prove via scientific yeah. methodologies. And so Sagan is actually very careful in both book and film to make the point accurately and correctly that there are kinds of knowledge that are not less mm -hmm. true and that do have warrant for belief, which are also not the same as the kinds of things you can demonstrate in a way that is satisfactory to the materialist approach of science as is yeah. practiced today. You can't prove this materially. That doesn't mean it's not true. I was actually really pleased with this. It was really good. I was like, Sagan, you At did the, end the, of the thing. Movie, they even nail this when um, in the movie, mm -hmm. they don't have the advisor read them the riot act. They put them in front. <laughs> Silence them. Yeah, they put them yeah. in front of Congress and have her say her spiel the committee chair says, you know, that sounds crazy, right? And she's like, yeah, kind of. She's like, we're not going to do anything with that based on your crazy testimony. She's like, yeah. Right. A critical difference in the movie is it's and just tapes her, get erased too. Because of magnetic forces, mm -hmm. which they probably should have thought about that in advance. They made a giant super magnet. Seriously. You know, these. I mean, I've done things like that. I was being paid half a trillion dollars to do it. Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> so Details. They, she says. But 11 hours of erased uh, tape. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's yeah. the kicker. I like that. I was actually pleased with that kicker. Yeah. So she goes on the spiel and she says, like, no, I know that this happened. This is a thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And that basically just ends in a stalemate of like, uh, thank you. You're done now. And so she walks out, and <laughs> Palmer Joss is there, and she's doing the whole, like, shielding from the media thing, which is, like, just one of my favorite movie fakes about media. <laughs> doesn't usually well, happen like that. you mean like that's that. not how it really it works? usually happen like that. I mean, I can't say this never happened like that, because it definitely has, but, <laughs> like... <laughs> it's usually not. Um, but still, it's a, great, it's a great thing. It's a great movie thing. And yep. It's a good movie trope. They get down to the car, they put Ellie in the car, and Palmer Joss is standing there, and they're sticking their microphones in his face, and they're like, what do you think? And Matthew McConaughey doing maximum Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> maximum it's so Matthew great. McConaughey. It's so maximum that even I appreciate it. Like, I think Max Matthew McConaughey <laughs> is kind of ridiculous, but, like, even to this point, of, it is just amazing. He stands there, and he kind of cocks his head. And he looks out, and he says, I believe her. And he gets in the car, and then they zoom off. <laughs> I was like, that's good. That's the scientist trying yeah. to say that faith is real in this thing that mm -hmm. happened and the religion person saying like, yeah, 
that's cool. That can happen. <laughs> yeah. And Sagan hammers home to the idea that all right, all there right, could be evidence right. that he hadn't considered about God having left a stamp, mm, as yeah. it were, that provides warrant on the yeah. scientific front for belief. We mentioned last time the end of the book has Ellie's computer computing that once you get far enough into the digits of pi, it has a message which says, hey, look, a circle, and prints a circle if you count it in base 11. And kind of wild and kind of wacky, but given the earlier argument in the book of why couldn't God have made it clear that He's there, that there's actually, there's some reason to believe these things, that, you know, the the atomic number of magnesium is sort of trap door in the text, as it were. And Sagan says, maybe there is one, and we just haven't found it yet. And it's encoded in the structure of reality and the universe itself. And Which is a big move. It was a really a big move on his part. It was a really... It's very generous. Yeah, and it's a really big opening of the door yeah. on his part to say... There are things I don't know. Yeah. I could be wrong. Sagan was a committed agnostic. He was he, very much not a committed a atheist. Hardcore he was a committed agnostic. agnostic. A show me the evidence. And that makes me agnostic. sad. I wish. Oh. Yeah. I, I wish he had been a committed Christian yeah. instead. But I can appreciate the intellectual honesty of that move at the end of the book to say, here's what I have said. Now let me pay it off yeah. at the end of the book yeah. and say, yeah. Really? Yeah, and in the book, the the creepy Jeff Bezos guy, <laughs> like, sort of gets his own reward. He sort of is is mm-hmm. the, uh, I verily I say they have received their reward in full. He sort of has that ending. Yep. In the movie, where he is less noxious, um, but still kind of creepy, he mm-hmm. dies, sort of, sadly. Like sort of awkward, sadly. Yeah. Like, oh, that's yeah, bummer. I didn't even like that character. It's kind of a bummer. But <laughs> so there's the they they flattened a few of the things out for mm-hmm. the movie, but really they did quite a good job of keeping the themes going. I would have yeah. preferred if Ellie and Palmer weren't banging in the first scene. Um, <laughs> that seems like an unnecessary addition just to get a shirtless Matt McConaughey into this movie. But other than that, they really didn't shoehorn much else in. That made me mad. No, and the things they cut were mostly what you would expect to cut from a many hundred pages long yeah, book to get it down into two and a half nuclear hours. Nuclear disarmament stuff. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, curiously, for as much as it was a lot about that, Stephen said last time that the book was really about that, and it really wasn't. But it was definitely there as a key theme and a thing that Sagan wanted you to hear along the way. I would argue that, yes, it's really about epistemology and belief. And but the secondary thing is that Mm -hmm. the the arguments that people have over geopolitics and nuclear stuff are are dumb. They're dumb, but they're dumb for the same reasons that the arguments between science and religion are dumb. That's right. why it's important to him. It's because he's saying, like, look, if we can get over this whole science and religion thing, and we can, then we mm-hmm. can get over this whole nuclear thing because it's even stupider. So, like, right. even though the book is about belief, like, 
that's why I said it's like about nuclear politics is because like it's really saying like look if I can get over this I'm the I'm the hate atheist over here like you hate me <laughs> like if we can get over this religion thing we can we can not blow ourselves up it's fine like that's what I mean by it's really about nuclear politics is because like sure it's about SETI and it's it's his career it's about SETI you know we write about the things we know but like yeah I feel like the undertone, obviously, that there's a top level that's just about belief. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that undertone was real strong, real strong. Yeah, and I think I would I would say it a little differently, but broadly agree. And that is that he wanted to see peace. Yes. And he wanted to see human beings living together well instead Indeed. of threatening to murder all of us. I at the drop of a hat. I agree with his assessments. Yeah, yeah. And and for him, he he clearly saw religion as a dead end toward that aim. He saw, and I think this is where a lot of his felt hostility toward fundamentalism came from, is he saw it as an obstacle toward ever getting to peace. He saw it as yeah. inflammatory. Well, he, he disapproves of its eschatology is what he does. He... He disapproves strongly of Jenkins and LaHaye dispensationalism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think I think even equally deeply, it's, it's important, right? Because Jenkins and LaHaye yeah. eschatology ends in the world in like fire and chaos, like right, so, which is not yeah. his interest. No, he wants to see like if he were going to be a Christian, the dude would be a post millennial, very much a post millennial. <laughs> uh, but but he wants to see peace and cooperation and working well together. And I think part of the reason he's such a big fan of science, science as this kind of cultural edifice is because it was one of the few places during the Cold War where, with really large exceptions around, wait for it, nuclear technologies, nuclear there was a lot of cooperation still happening across these borders. And it was one of the few places where that kind of thing was not only tolerated, but allowed and yeah. encouraged and... And so there's these cultural background reasons for that as well. Yeah. No, it's true. Except for Soviet genetics, which was a whole other thing. But True that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but other than that. <laughs> Lysenkoism. Whoa. Uh, but why the? Oh. Okay, I retract that question. So, yeah, I, I agree that science in a lot of places, in a lot of ways, was the, the big overbarrier thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um it was allowed in the communist countries. It was allowed in the Soviet bloc. It was not persecuted the way that all religions were in the Soviet yep. bloc and in um, the other communist nations where various ideologies of the day were in power and against this one or that one. So, uh, yeah, I think he's right that he's saying, like, look, this is the way that we go forward. It's you know, and he was a traditional 80s globalist, right? Like he wanted yep. to see the whole world get together. Now, he didn't go for world government. It's not a thing he did. Mm-mm. So not a thing. But he wanted to see the world work together, cooperate, international, multilateral. Yep. It's a thing. It's It was a vision. It is a vision. I still want it to be a vision. I have the yep. vision. <laughs> and I like that the vision he, as you just said, the vision he had was not of the erasal or removal of differences. No. It was the cooperation between differences. In fact, it's the fifth member of the committee, or of the machine participants, whatever they're called, 
<laughs> that is the most interesting to me because they, for complicated reasons, decided to pick a person from Africa as the fifth person. Mm-hmm. And he has a completely different relationship to everything that happens in the machine than the other four people. And mm-hmm. he's also the only one who's like happily married. And he just like goes home and goes back yep. to doing his job and like just reintegrates into society where it's clear that the other ones are going to have trouble doing that. And he's just like, yeah, you know, it is what it is. We'll go back to my family now. <laughs> and like, it's this weird, it's great. It's this weird moment where he just acknowledges that like some cultures are going to have a problem with this. Some are not. Some are not. <laughs> some will be fine. I thought it was a great little, little moment in the book. I was like, yeah. So there are a lot of moments like that in the book where he really yeah. showed that like he acted like a writer he is a writer in this book he's not just a scientist mm-hmm. sciencing he's he's doing yeah my my worry going in was that it was going to be science novel that is actually just a science thing but no it's actually a pretty good novel it has its moments where you're like okay second you didn't need to insert that aside yep. there about your politics about something yeah but on the whole but he, it's yeah, good he... and fair characterization it's good enough plotting that I never, even those first 60 pages notwithstanding, I never got bored. Yeah, I mean... I always wanted to pick it back up. What he really should have done is put the, like, the first chapter, pages 60 through 80 or whatever, as the first chapter, and then, like, gone back and done the <laughs> flashback and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, now let's read about our intrepid hero. And, like, yep. that would have, that probably would have slaked my concerns a little bit. But, like, I was kind of wondering, like, <laughs> what's going to happen? I mean, am I, are they right. not going to find anything? Like, right. like, is is this just going to be a 400 pages of SETI not doing anything? Like, so, you know, I, I didn't believe, but I also was like, yes, every passing page, I'm like, this is becoming more and more likely. Like, <laughs> I'm getting concerned. <laughs> so, but yeah, you're right. The plotting is actually quite good. It doesn't drag. Yeah. Yeah. There were also some scenes where I was like, yeah. So <laughs> it's a good book. And the movie was surprisingly good, other than the caveats I've already made. Yep. They do punt on the ending somewhat, um, only somewhat, because mm-hmm. they do throw in one nugget to redeem some of the themes from the book. But yeah, it's it's a pretty good movie. It's also a very Robert Zemeckis movie, up to and including the look at this trick shot I just pulled with oh, the man. camera. I bet you didn't even know I could do that, uh, did you? To be fair, I was tricked. <laughs> it was a good trick shot. <laughs> it's a trick shot, and I was tricked. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it is. It's a very much a big blockbuster 1990s movie. But in general, I was one impressed that it actually had things to say about epistemology in a real meaningful mm-hmm. way. So pat on the back for us. <laughs> we chose well, even though we chose poorly and got yet another book That's from the mid eighties. Y'all are going to know a lot about nuclear disarmament by the time this is over. <laughs> Secondly, I was impressed that it was even-handed, as we've discussed. It mm-hmm. was it was well done on that front. And yeah. third, as I mentioned, I was just impressed at how writerly it was. Like there were just some good sections yeah. where I was like, "Oh, that's just a good, good old little section right there." And so yeah. I could commend this book to you, particularly if you don't like Carl Sagan. Like I think you <laughs> might like Carl Sagan a little more at the end of the book. You just skip like yeah. chapter ten or whatever it is. Like just. Right. Right. You might still disagree with him, but you'll probably yeah. come away appreciating that he was given it the old college he really try. He was. And just really efforting. 
So good job, yeah, Carl. So it was it was good. All right. So, dear listeners, I need to let you know something of great import. This episode is the nineteenth episode in this season. <laughs> this is the most episodes we've ever, ever had. In this had. And we've got four to go, we've got four, at yeah, least. Probably four to go, at least. This is amazing. One, thanks for putting up with us for this long. <laughs> we we didn't story. give you any breaks this time. We usually give you a break at like six months, but nope. Right on through. Two, uh, thanks for just... I mean, I kind of feel like I have to say it twice. Thanks for hanging in. Like, this is, <laughs> this is a long season... For you, for us, I mean, it matches the long year that is 2020. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like, uh, <laughs> it's fitting. fitting. Whatever it's fitting. else we can say for it's it. Fitting. So we, we're we really proud of that, that we've made it to 19, and we may, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, which in 2020, <laughs> check your creeks. <laughs> <laughs> so many. Uh we will keep going and, and have two more books and maybe even a wrap up if we're enthusiastic. And yep. so that's cool. And I'm proud. As we mentioned last time, those upcoming books, as we plan it today, which readers, you know, things can change. But as we plan I've it today, them, the upcoming so. books are for next month Zainab Tufeki's Twitter and Tear Gas. And for the month after that, Robin Sloan's. Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. There will be links to these in the show notes, of course, so you can purchase I've already read Penumbra's because 2020 is hard, and that book is delightful. So I commend you. If you've not read any of the other books along with us, please read Mr. Penumbra's. It's so good. (laughs) I'm so excited because I read Robin Sloan's more recent novel, Sourdough, and it's probably my favorite piece of fiction I've read in the last five years. It's just delightful. It's just it's beautiful. Sloan's work is it's just really, really beautiful. Oh, no, it's it's just so look encouraging. Let's just be honest. When Alan Jacobs comes out on a contemporary novel and says, <laughs> "Everybody, read this right now," you just shut up and read True it, okay, that. people? True that. The music at the beginning of this week's episode was "Character" by Kylie Odetta. Character, it turns out, independent of the song, is not a thing that you can measure scientifically, but it is a thing you can That's know about. True. Talking about your character. It's a great song. Okay. Uh, if you want to support the episodes that we'll be putting out, <laughs> which is, I'm still mind-boggled <laughs> that we're going to have this many, but if you want to support them, you can do so at Patreon, patreon.com slash winning slowly. Also, you can give directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly, which I hope Chris is checking because I've like never checked. So I, I get the go. infos Good. when it Boom. happens. Thank you for doing that. If you want to tell us your opinions about this episode, including getting grumpy at me for how grumpy I am about the 1980s and the arguments between science and religion in the 1980s, you can do that. You can do that. You can send us a note at, <laughs> on Facebook at Winning Slowly Podcast. If you want me not to see it, send it there. You could also send it to us on Twitter at Winning Slowly, another place where I won't see yep. it. Or if you want me to actually see it and maybe respond, you can email us at hello at winningslowly.org. That's right. And we will, well, at least one of us, cough, cough, Stephen cough, will get back to you no matter how That's you connect true. with us that way. All right. And as always, thanks for listening.
her spiel and then the the mm-hmm. chamber uh uh not the chamber lead the committee uh meeting leader let's call him that the chairperson i'm looking for the word chairperson that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Steven, you work at a university. You should know what a committee chair is. I know. I know. I'm looking for the word. I'm looking for a committee chair. That's the word I'm looking for. I am a committee chair. <laughs> oh, great. Look at that blooper. Bomp, bomp. Committee chair forgets <laughs> the name of his own position. 